Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with the world's best magic players. Are you tired of listening to the same old Magic the Gathering podcasts, Deck of the Week, or how some random dude won his local FNM? Maybe rules changes or yet another preview card discussion. Well, this is not that kind of podcast. In fact, we're going deep into the minds of your favorite Magic players. This is going to be a personal journey and a study in how they approach the game. Mindset, motivation, goals, it's all here. So sit back, relax, and get ready for a unique learning experience. Humans of Magic is available on iTunes. Please subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss a future episode again. Just open up your podcast app, search for Humans of Magic, that's Humans of Magic, and hit that subscribe button. And hey, if you like what you hear, please leave a review and tell a friend. I've also started a website to host all this content. It's on humansofmagic.com. You'll actually find text transcripts of a lot of these audio interviews. So if you ever want to read the Martin Yuza interview or Jerry Thompson or some of these other guys that I've had on the show, please hit up humansofmagic.com. That's humansofmagic.com. Hey guys, this week in Humans of Magic, I'm talking to the one and only Dan Signorini. Dan is the creator of Team America, the awesome legacy deck back in the day that played Tarmogoyfs, Tombstalkers, Sinkholes, Him to Turok, Thoughtseize, Snuff Out, Brainstorm, Stifles, basically every good card in the BUG colors, that was Team America. It was really my first love in Legacy. It was the, the deck that got me into the format, and it's been highly evolved over the years, but Dan is still very much a proponent of the Temple strategy. And so we were able to geek out over Team America, or I should say I was able to geek out over Team America with him in this episode. And you know what? The really good thing about this episode is that it wasn't just about magic either. So in true Humans of Magic fashion, we talked about all of the other interests that Dan had, whether it was martial arts, violin, his family, just all kinds of good stuff. I mean, he's got, I mean, Dan's a super intelligent guy and he's got a lot of interesting opinions and I certainly learned a lot. I certainly experienced a lot in talking to him and I hope you enjoy this conversation too. And oh yeah, there is one thing. Were it not for Dan's influence and Team America's influence, this podcast today would just not exist. I mean, Dan has been extremely influential to me and has been influential to many a legacy player over the years and couldn't be more honored to have this talk with him. Uh, it was an honor and a privilege, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Dan Signorini. How are things going, Dan? Hey, James, they're going great. How are you doing? So what's keeping you busy? I, I know it's the holidays. We are headed right into Christmas as we're recording this. Yes, we are. And uh, I'm quite aware of that. And so is uh, Amazon as well. So they've been working overtime delivering stuff to my house, apparently. Um, but yeah, so it's it's been good. Yeah, just uh, I've uh, been, you know, kind of busy with fatherhood and you know, trying to keep up with family and magic at some point, you know, but you know, everything's been going pretty well. Yeah. So whereabouts are you right now? 
We're doing this over over Skype, so I wanted to to get a sense. Sure, sure. So I'm just at my house right now in uh, Northern Virginia, just hanging out. Have you been there for a very long time, or it's it is that is that where you grew up, or where you've been the last couple of years? Uh, so I've actually been in Northern Virginia since I graduated from uh, the University of Maryland in 2004. Uh, first uh, job offer I had was out in Centerville, actually. So. That's when I wound up moving over here. I actually grew up in Maryland, uh, right outside of Annapolis in a town called Crofton. And uh, before that, I actually was born in Brazil. So my father's Brazilian, mother's American. Uh, so your last name is actually Brazilian, or it's Italian, but, but your it's, father grew yeah, up there. It's Italian, but you know, my, my father's, uh, I guess, first-generation Brazilian, and then he came up here to do his, uh, his PhD work at URI, and that's where he met my mother, so... That's where that goes. Very cool. So how's your Portuguese? Oh, terrible. I, uh, I can understand quite a bit of it, actually, just from being exposed at a young age. But I, uh, I never really took the effort to become fluent. So it's one of those regrets. I've, I kind of wish I had done that when I was younger. But, you know, still have some time to learn. Maybe it's going to be my next project. I eventually wanted to go back. So. Oh, have you not had a chance to, to go back and take a look? No, funny enough, I, uh, I actually I came up here when I was an infant, so nine months old, and I still have family down there, but I haven't had a chance to come back, so maybe at some point I'll have to plan a trip when things calm down a little bit. I see. And uh, how, many, how many kids do you have? So I have two kids now. I have a, a three-year-old daughter and a six-month-old son. Wow, that's got yeah. to be basically a full-time job for you guys, right? <laughs> Oh yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's funny how things change once you have kids, but um, no, they're 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 great. It's it's uh, it's definitely been you know a wild ride so far, and they you know they they certainly shift your priorities, and you know they they um, it's it's kind of an odd experience because you you sort of uh, you know you you kind of feel a lot more vulnerable when you have kids. You know, it's kind of like wearing your heart on the outside of your body. I guess that's the best way to describe it. But you know, it's really really fascinating to watch them grow up especially when they start talking so my daughter's a little chatterbox oh okay uh and and your son is not able to speak yet but will be soon hopefully right <laughs> yeah yeah he just likes to smile <laughs> so he's 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 getting he's coming along haven't heard the, the dada yet but I'm sure <laughs> it's probably soon. it's probably coming soon so what is yeah. your uh what is your your older daughter i mean what what does she want for christmas she actually only wants one thing, funny enough. She wants uh, she likes this show called Paw Patrol, and uh, there's a character called Everest, and so she wants a, an Everest toy. And I told <laughs> her that Santa could probably make that happen. So, Yes, uh, Santa Amazon? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, at, th- at this age, the requests are, are manageable, and it's, you know, parents are, and grandparents and, and relatives are all giving them so many gifts anyway, so uh, she'll probably make out like a bandit. Yeah. Yeah, it, it'll probably get harder as you go, right? Oh, sure, yeah. I can't yeah. wait till she's, you know, asking for the iPhone 25 or whatever it is. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. Actually, that's a great topic is, uh, I don't know if this is probably way too far in advance, but have you and your wife ever thought about when you actually start allowing your kids to use uh, mobile phones or devices? Oh, man. Um, I haven't even thought about that. At, you know, at, at this point, when she gets into kindergarten, they might be using smartphones for all I know. So um, I think you sort of have to embrace the fact that we are just 
as a society going to be more and more reliant on this technology and you kind of have to embrace it, I think, and, you know, sort of regulate it as best as you can, but prepare your kids for the world as it is. So I'm not particularly against getting her some of these electronic devices when she's at a, you know, reasonable age, I guess, but I'm, I'm sure that, uh, you know, we might not be the ones that dictate that choice. You know, I think I think the schools are are using tablets, and who knows? You know, for I'm sure parents give their kids cell phones for emergencies once they're old enough to be out on their own. So, oh, for sure. I mean, it's a big world yeah. out there. You can't really influence uh, what your kids are into, or what their friends are into. Yeah, right? yeah. You can just sort of steer them in the right direction, and you know, hope for the best. But uh, you know, I don't I don't want to be too constrictive on my kids because that tends to you know backfire on most people that do that but at the same time you know you have to keep things keep these things within reason so i have no idea at this point i mean we're, we're just dealing with you know the the, the three-year-old problems at this point we'll deal with the four-year-old problems next year and so forth and so on oh for sure yeah first thing yeah. for one thing at a time for sure <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah everybody everybody has a plan but you know it doesn't always work out the way you think it's going to yeah, what was it that Mike Tyson said? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Well, I guess it's punched in the face. Yeah, or punched in the <laughs> well, mouth. Forgot which I don't one it was. Be so violent, yeah. but you know, it's just I don't yeah. know why this came up. But... No, no, the theory applies. You know. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I think the one time that we had met was before you had kids. It was, I want to say it was GP Providence. There was, it, I think you were there. Um, you probably I, I don't remember actually. me, but uh, it was just I went, I went by, and I. I realized who you were. I gave you a handshake, and then I went off on my way. But uh, have you been, been have you been playing Legacy all this time? Like I've seen your name come up in a in a few results and things like that. But has it been a regular thing for you, sure. or has it been harder with fatherhood and and all that? It it has not been regular at all. Actually, I um I think the last big event I played in was Eternal Weekend. Um, but that was uh that was a little while ago. Uh, not too long, but that, you know, I, I, I tend to try to, uh, you know, I, I don't want to spend too much time away from the family at this, at this point in my, in my life and at this point in their development, obviously. But, uh, you know, every now and then I get to go away for a weekend and have some fun playing magic. So it's, it's definitely toned down a lot more that now the nowadays. So for obvious reasons. And how was eternal weekend? Uh, it was pretty good actually. Uh, so, um, I didn't re- obviously I didn't have much time to to prepare or to test, uh, but I figured I'd just play a Delver deck, you know, go figure. For change. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So uh, I actually talked with uh, Bob Huang, and he gave me his Grixis Delver list, and I just sort of, you know, put it together and, and went to the tournament and uh, started off really well. I think I was like seven zero or eight zero or something like that. And then this was a, a extremely long tournament too. I think it was like thirteen rounds on day one. It was like a GP plus four or something like that. 12 or 13, can't remember which. It was like 12 or 13 rounds, and you had to do it all in one day, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a really long day, and it was just, you know, I was like not prepared for that at all, but it was, uh, it, it went pretty well. I mean, I think we actually, Bob and I actually played for our winning in, and uh, it was uh, kind of one of those Delver matchups where you just, you know, the person on the play just won. So he won on the he won the die roll, beat me, I beat him, then he beat me. So it was not eventful at all. And then I, you know, I think I wound up X3 in the end. Uh-huh. So overall, it was pretty. You know, I got got some store credit for it, and it was you know pretty good time. But um, Delver's still good for any <laughs> listeners that are that are wondering. Delver is always good. Yeah, it's like this thing yeah. that doesn't doesn't go away. 
Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. And it's actually, I think it's a problem that's been figured out for a long time. I, I was kind of stubborn with the, the builds, but I, I think Grixis Delver is probably at this point, just the figured out Delver deck in legacy mm-hmm. just because of, of all the elements it has. So, and you and Bob go way back, right? So it's, it's, I didn't know you guys actually had to play each other in the tournament, but his, oh, his yeah. list seems to be like de facto. But I, he, he told me that he really learned a lot from you. You're, you're, you're basically the grandfather of Delver decks, at least as far as he's concerned, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I suppose so. I mean, um, I guess going way back to the, the Team America days, that uh, was sort of, for, sort of a pseudo Delver deck before Delver. But, um, but yeah, the whole legacy agro control threshold, that whole play a bunch of cantrips and efficient threats has just sort of evolved and I've, I've kind of been on the curve ever since that's been happening. So um, I think I started playing Legacy when it was still 1.5. So it's it's been a while. I started off playing uh, the Suicide Black archetype and so eventually I just decided that Brainstorm was worth it and jumped on that train. And the rest is history, as they say. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and did you have any other fun stuff happening for you for Eternal Weekend, I imagine that if you had to play 12, 13 rounds in one day, it probably leaves very little time to do anything else, but I was just curious. Oh, yeah. I mean, we um, you know, we were trying to, to go out in Pittsburgh and, and see some friends that we hadn't seen in a while. And so, you know, we just got some food, had some drinks. Um, you know, it was, it was just a good kind of road trip that we took. It was nice to hang out with a bunch of the people that I you know, haven't had a lot of time to hang out with lately. So it was a good time. Very cool. So mm-hmm. we'll probably get back to Team America in just a second. I'm super excited oh, yeah. about that. But, jump, uh, jump the gun there. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's all good, man. This is free-flowing. Yeah. And uh, we, we talked about uh, you know letting your kids use technology or phones and things like that. I, I'm trying mm-hmm. to recall, is your occupation, are you a, are you a software developer? Or what, what exactly is it that you do? Sorry to be so, yes. so upfront with it, but I, I was just curious. <laughs> No, the answer is definitely yes. I uh, I am a software developer, um, and you know I, I've I've handled you know the Java development, more of a I've I've done more DevOps kind of oriented development. I've uh, I've actually traveled a lot to do you know O and M uh, and and field work to upgrade infrastructure that kind of thing. So I've I've kind of worn a lot of hats in my career, but right now it's more of a straight up development kind of job that I have. Hopefully the hours are not too bad that you can, you can, is it a kind of a nine to five or you have to do a lot of overtime, a lot of travel uh, or, or all the above? Oh no, it's, it's great. It's, it's very convenient. Uh, nine to five would be almost too restrictive. I mean, it's, I have relatively flexible hours and it's, it's, um, it's a really good job to have, especially when you have children. So, you know, you've got the flexibility in your schedule and I'm not overly stressed at work. I don't have to travel. It's, it's been really good. I've actually had this job for less than a year now, actually. I think I started in February, so it's been kind of kind of new. I see. Was there a particular reason for switching roles or companies? or oh, Just a, a more uh, an economic opportunity. You know, it was just a, a bigger paycheck and uh, more flexibility, honestly, more vacation time. Oh, sure. So, yeah, that's yeah. absolutely uh, an incentive. Yep, grass is greener. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and <laughs> yeah. sometimes it actually is greener on the other side. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually work in tech as well, uh, more on the product management side of things. Oh, okay. And I actually am not too familiar with Virginia in terms of tech and the East Coast, actually. I'm, I'm very 
foreign to even when it comes to places like new york i've I've been mostly working out of china which is where i am but i also have been working uh on the west coast and i know there's a lot of opportunities on the west coast but i don't know how it is actually in your part of the woods is it is it pretty vibrant is it there's a lot of opportunities going on yeah definitely i mean um there's there's a lot of companies that have headquarters out here and and um you know a lot of a lot of uh let's see you got like the the Northrop Grumman's and the the Lidos and you know all those kinds of companies that are mainly or uh, uh, mainly flock to this area and uh you know it's it's all like DC beltway kind of uh you know a lot of government contractors a lot of uh I know Amazon has an office out here and Google does as well so there's there's there's, there's you know a lot of opportunity in this area especially for a good a good dev so you know yeah, hopefully you're one of those. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wouldn't claim to be, but uh, other people think I am, so I'll, I'll just keep the ruse going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so Dan, let's just start from the beginning. If we could go back to the origin story, uh, I would love for you to tell me a little bit about your childhood and and family, just your your hometown, anything you want to let me know, just starting from the very beginning. Sure. So I... Uh, like I said before, I, I was actually born in Brazil, but I have little to no memory of it because I came back to the States when I was very little, you know, nine months old, I think it was. And uh, so we moved back up to where my mother grew up, which was Boston, Massachusetts. And I lived there for four years, I think. Yeah, it was about four years. And then we came down to Crofton, and I've been living in the D.C. metro area ever since then. So grew up in Crofton, uh, went to the University of Maryland, and then you know, graduated with a comp sci degree and came out over here. And that's basically, as far as traveling is concerned, uh, the whole story. <laughs> what was Crofton like? What was it like growing up? I mean, describe to me a little bit the town or the city. And uh, I've not been, so just any anything sure. memorable or any anything interesting about it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was. Um, it's one of those towns that's it, it's sort of right in the middle of the triangle of Annapolis, Baltimore, and D.C. So it's a really big kind of commuter town for a lot of, you know, working professionals that, you know, have families that want to go out into the suburbs. Uh, so it was very suburban. Um, it, uh, I wouldn't say it was boring, but, it, it you know, they're, they're, Annapolis is about a 10, 15-minute drive from, our, from where my parents live, so that's usually where we'd go hang out if we want to go into town, so to speak. Um, but, yeah, growing up, we, you know, it's – it's funny how things have changed nowadays and how they also kind of stay the same. But um, I, I, I kind of noticed that, that we played outside a lot more when I was growing up. You know, there was less, less of the helicopter parenting movement. So I was kind of a free range kid. Um, so we'd have this, you know, group of, of kids that are, you know, all different ages in our neighborhood that would just roam around and play outside and get into trouble, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a pretty healthy childhood that I had. You know, mom and dad were very stable, working adults, and didn't feel like I wanted for anything. And it was a, you know, good old-fashioned, uh, middle-class American upbringing. <laughs> yeah. So what did your parents do? You you mentioned something about your dad, but uh, tell me about what he, what it was like. I mean, what what did he do when as you were growing up? Oh, yeah. So my dad's one of the smartest people I know. He's he, uh, he Well, he got his uh, PhD in physical oceanography from the University of Rhode Island, that's why he came up to the States. And uh, so then he started working uh, in Crofton for a few companies. I'm, I'm, I can't recall 
specifically what they were when I was growing up, but he eventually uh, got a job working at NASA, at NASA Goddard. And uh, so that's what he's been doing ever since. Uh, I think he works basically with uh, the carbon cycle and, and a lot of satellite data doing analysis. And my mother is a nurse, an RN, and she works for uh, a doctor in Annapolis, a doctor's office that specializes in uh, mainly kind of a, a physical therapy-ish kind of dietary advice, kind of more um, lifestyle medicine for active people kind of thing. So uh, that's that's their background, and uh, you know they they're both very smart people, and they I think they raised me with a good appreciation for you know academics and working hard. So were you closer to your mom or your dad? That's a tough question. I think that kind of depends on a lot of factors and, and how old I was at the time. I mean, it kind of flip-flopped a little bit. You know, every every kid, you know, you, you've got your 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 scuffles with your you know your your disagreements with one parent over the other at certain points in your life. But uh, I I actually think it was pretty pretty equal as far as my relationship between the two. Um, you know, my mother uh, was probably home more than you know she wasn't a stay-at-home mom, but she was home more than my dad was growing up, but it's not like my dad was a, a workaholic that never came home or anything like that. It's just sort of, you know, my mom was around more when I was really little. And then as things advanced and, you know, I needed help with my math homework, you know, my dad was there to help me. So right. it was a pretty, really healthy relationship with both my parents. What about siblings? Did you have any siblings? <laughs> yes. Or do I you have, have uh, any siblings? I shouldn't use the yeah. past tense on that. Yes, unless something very bad has happened. I, I have uh, an older sister. She's three years older than me. Are you guys close? Yeah, we're pretty close. I mean, um, you know, I, I live in Northern Virginia now. She still is, lives in Maryland, but we, we see each other probably, you know, once or twice a month. And, um, yeah, we, we keep in touch as much as, you know, as much as we can with our hectic lifestyles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, is she a parent as well or...? Uh, she's not, uh, not yet. At least I'm, uh, not sure if she actually just got married, uh, this year. So I think it was two months ago was the wedding. So there, uh, you know, who knows, might have a, might have a nephew coming along at some point. <laughs> <laughs> or, I'm sorry, nephew or niece. I just nephew or son, niece. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going, I'm not, <laughs> don't, didn't want to be uh, gender biased there or anything. Right. Right. Yeah. So going back to your adolescence, uh, you know, you're a free range kid, you're, you're playing with your friends. What kind of stuff did you mm -hmm. like to do? What were your interests or hobbies as you were growing up? Oh man, I think uh, once once the NES came out, is it was all about those video games when I was growing up. So that was a big part of it. Um, let's see. I, I actually uh, I played the violin uh, all throughout my childhood from about third grade. I think that's when I started to play. Yeah. So uh, music was big was a big part of my life. Still is, but not as much as before. Um, yeah, and we just, you know, I, I, I wasn't too into sports growing up. I guess I, I played soccer for about twelve years, mainly because my dad kind of pushed me into it. And mm -hmm. you know, he's Brazilian. That's just in my DNA. So <laughs> uh, it's, even if I didn't want to play, I still had to. You know, sure. Something, something bad would happen to me if I didn't. So, um, and uh, yeah, so I did that for a while, and it was, it was okay, and. Uh, mainly it was just sort of, you know, hanging out and playing video games and having Nerf battles, that kind of thing. Nerf battles. Okay. With the Nerf guns. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Oh yeah. 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 I, I yeah, remember all, all, all kinds of creative ways to, to shoot each other when we were growing up. For sure. And yeah. so you've been a video gamer 
for since the NES. I mean, um, do you still mm-hmm. do you still play video games today, or? Uh, not nearly as much. I uh, I actually uh, I started playing League of Legends a little while ago just because I, a couple of my friends were playing it and uh, I like the competitive nature of it. So I always have to have a competitive outlet of some kind mm. going on at any point in my life. I've noticed this. So mm. you know, Magic is a good outlet, and I think I like games like League where there's a huge online community and there's a competitive ladder. That kind of thing is yeah. That, that's kind of appealing to me. So I don't have much time to spend on it, obviously. But yeah. <laughs> What about violin? Was it competitive? Did you have to uh, face against you know other violinists and try to outperform them? Yeah, and the <laughs> the battle of fiddlers. Uh, actually, um, I I came very close to making that a career. Uh, oh, really? I, I th- there was like a decision point in high school where I decided that you know maybe you know you can either go to a, a music school or go to the University of Maryland and study engineering or computer science. So I chose the latter just because of my uh, more practical. I guess my, my more practical side kind of won out in that conversation. Not to say that uh, playing the violin is, is a impractical career, but it takes a lot more talent, I think, to make the kind of money that you would as a computer scientist, obviously. So, But that even was, as uh, you were younger, did you feel like you had the talent for that if you really wanted to get into it? Maybe. I mean, I... I think the talent was there, but the passion was kind of lacking until I got maybe into high school. Um, my parents actually, they, they started paying for private lessons when I was, I think, in seventh grade or eighth grade. And uh, the teacher that I had was extremely good. I mean, she was just a wonderful teacher and um, knew knew how to kind of motivate me a little bit more. And, and that's when I actually started to get to the point where I was you know, a good violinist as opposed to just a teenager that was kind of playing around in the orchestra, you know. So I, I started doing like the the all county stuff, and I actually got a chance to play with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra when I was in high school. It, it was, I think it was called the Side by Side that they did, and you'd have to audition, and then they put on a concert with the people that you know from the high schools, the local high schools that got through the audition phase. So that was a pretty neat experience. Holy smokes! Wow, you were very yeah. close to like being on a. On a on a violin CD cover some somewhere that I would have found in a music store or something, you know. Yeah, or or just being you know like a session player for you know bands or something like that, or playing with a professional orchestra. Who knows? I'm not not entirely sure what the career path for a violinist is nowadays. But, yeah, um, yeah. I I mean, that's that's amazing. I'm I'm just I'm just thinking about this. So, do you still have? So, music's basically still part of your life today. Like, do you still go to concerts and? and listen to music and do you still play uh yes yes to all of the above uh i don't play as much as i'd like to but i think uh i'm gonna start playing a little bit more just to sort of spark the interest with my kids you know when they're when they're old enough to appreciate it so um i already took out my violin for my daughter and funny enough she was uh annoyed at how loud it was so she played <laughs> <it> away. <laughs> i'm sure it wasn't because of any of my you know, skill playing it, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Turn it down, Dad. It's too loud. I want to watch uh, exactly. TV or um, what yeah. was the name of that character on the on the show? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everest or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Air quotes. It's too loud, Dad. Yeah. It was me being nice to you. Right. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I, I definitely would like to, you know, keep up with the music and, and get back to where I was before. But who, who knows, you know, I might, might get back into it hardcore and, you know, couple months or so yeah I'm, I'm i'm not the type of person that kind of 
half-asses things, so to speak. If, if I'm going to do something, I, I tend to do it wholehearted. So. I've heard that about you from some yeah. of your friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess there's I no, There's no half-ass. There's only full-ass or full-ass. Exactly. Only full-ass. I don't have time for any half-assing. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, no, it's, it's great. Uh, One-track mind. Yeah, so, so tell me about high school. I mean, what was that like for you? Overall. Uh, yeah, so it was it – was, Overall, it was a positive experience, I think, but outside of the normal, you know, stupid teenager stuff. But, um, you know, I, I was in the orchestra and I also, you know, I, I had friends from all, all over the social spectrum in high school. It's very strange. It wasn't really very clicky where I was. It was sort of just a conglomerate of very eclectic people from what I was feeling, at least when I, when I grew up. So it was, it, was, it was a good place to go to high school. I went to high school in a rumble high. So we had a lot of kids in our class. I think the school had over 2,000 kids total. And I can't remember how big my graduating class was. But um, overall, I mean, it was a good group of kids. I, I, didn't, I, you know, I felt safe every day going. And, and I, I still keep in touch with a lot of the friends that I made. So. Did you have any interesting memories of the time with your friends or with anything that was going on? Oh, God, probably. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, we actually traveled a lot for uh, since I, I played in the orchestra in high school. And, um, so we went to uh, we had a trip to, to go to Toronto one year I believe, and um, I think it was ninth grade, and that was an interesting kind of road trip because we did it with a bus and you know all sorts of hijinks going on on that trip and you know, just <laughs> letting letting loose a bunch of teenagers with like four chaperones and you know to about a hundred kids right so it was it was kind of crazy yeah but was... I, I know that you're Canadian I, I uh, wouldn't yeah. mind going back up there. <laughs> it's probably, I imagine it'd be now. pretty hard for the teachers to control all the kids and all that, right? Oh, man, it was pandemonium. <laughs> but yeah, we all had a great time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, who who are some, like, did you have any uh, best friends or good friends uh, in high school that you, you said you still keep touch with some of them, right? Yeah, definitely. I, I actually grew up with uh, a few friends that I, well, one of my friends, this guy, Anthony, that I grew up with, I, I, I've known him since I think he was four years old. So I was about six years old when he was four, six or seven. I can't remember. I think I'm two years older than him. But uh, but yeah, we still keep in touch. So he's he's been my uh, he was my best man at my wedding, and um, you know right now he lives in New York. So I, I don't see him as much as I used to. But uh, I'm actually going to see him in a few days. So oh, very cool. Yeah, definitely, definitely have some close friendships going on from my childhood that I try to maintain as much as possible. Yeah, so what made you and Anthony yeah. become such good friends? Was it just a, some shared experiences, or what was it? So I, I, he lived, I guess, four or five houses down from me when I was growing up in Crofton, and I think he was just outside playing with you know, Matchbox cars or something. I was like, oh, hey, this kid's alone playing with Matchbox cars. Let's go you know, play with him. And then there you go. That's pretty much how it started. And uh, you know, I, I have many a long summer of going over there and playing – Video games, you know, like uh, I think one of our one of our favorite games was called Secret of Mana on the Super Nintendo. So we put a lot of hours in on that one. Yeah, I know and, that. Uh, one. I I, I yeah. feel like we're we're probably in <laughs> around the same age group. So even though I was okay. somewhere else on the West Coast, uh, I definitely remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we were definitely uh, Super Nintendo kids and not Sega kids. So we yeah. were uh, not one of those households that had it all. So. I actually had a friend growing up that had a Neo Geo, you know, the the, the rich friend. So, <laughs> but we, uh, yeah, Super Nintendo was our was our thing. Right, right. I remember going to the arcades as a kid back when they still had those. Oh yeah, they had all kinds of stuff back then. Arcades are kind of dead. I mean, I guess they're only around in really in Asia now. But uh, yeah, I know but, Japan. It's still pretty big. Yeah, but, yeah. I yeah. still try to watch uh, some of those. Uh, 
YouTube matches of people playing Street Fighter um, extremely well. So <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm actually a huge fan of Street Fighter. I, I played a. Uh, Played that game for a while, and then my, my friend Anthony got really good at uh, Guilty Gear. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Oh, game. I know that one too. Like yeah, another Guilty game. Gear XX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he um he was very good. He went to J- Japan and and played in like SBO or something like that. And he was he was a really good player. And wow. um, he, he taught me how to play by just demolishing me over a summer. And yeah. <laughs> eventually, I got to the point where I was reasonable because of osmosis. But mm-hmm. yeah, that was a that was a fun game. So you guys are pretty competitive, or you're just competitive in general, but you're also competitive with him when it comes to the games, right? Yeah, but on a, on a friendly level, like you know, it's not, there's no real trash talking or anything like that. I, it's funny. I actually, I, I get, I'm very good at learning by getting destroyed by people. You know what I mean? Like I, that whole getting frustrated and rage quitting on something. I think that that doesn't really exist in my brain mm-hmm. for some reason. I'll just I'll just want to keep going harder and harder and try to figure out what I'm doing wrong and then eventually conquer it, um, which can be a good thing and a bad thing, you know, because so, mm-hmm. it means that you're going to – you can get good at things through perseverance, but you also tend to not abandon things that you might not be ever good at, you know. Well, sure. So, I mean, but it's the best way to level up, right? You have to pick yourself exactly. up from the ground. You have, to, you have to be able to take the beatings. Uh, I mean, whether it's magic or – or playing an instrument like we all start off at a pretty low skill level and then you just have to to keep at it right oh yeah exactly you gotta you gotta persevere and understand that everybody starts off as a white belt right so <laughs> that's a good analogy I'm, I'm, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm an eternal white belt uh-huh but I, I also heard from somebody that you are actually a martial artist you you do you do something in that area right is it is it oh is yeah that true? definitely yeah. That is true. I um I got into martial arts I think right around the time I was uh, graduating from college around my first job when I moved to Northern Virginia and uh, I actually the I was all about the you know just being as effective as possible you know give me give me the super ninja death moves up front you know I want to be the most effective street fighter quote unquote you know <laughs> if somebody messes with me I want to you know be able to defend myself so yeah. um, I heard about this you know all those delusional things that people think when they first get into martial arts but. I got into a Israeli martial art called Krav Maga, which is essentially just, you know, uh, fight for your life kind of stuff. No, no rules, no holds barred. Do whatever is the most effective thing to get out of whatever situation you're in. And um, so I, I, I liked it. Uh, the classes were really intense and you, you trained under pressure and, um, you know, gave you a good workout on top of all of that. So I just wound up sticking with it and going off to LA for a week to do my uh, phase A instructor certification, mm-hmm. which allowed me to start teaching classes. And then I went to uh, phase B and phase C, which were also week long kind of seminars to get certified. And then I sort of started, I started teaching at George Mason for a little while. I had a class going on there mm-hmm. and then, uh, you know, life kind of happened. I started traveling more and kind of fell by the wayside. Um, but then I got into uh, Muay Thai which was uh, a little bit more, I guess it was more physically demanding because, uh, you know, I was actually trained to fight in a ring and that kind of um, took it to the next level, I think. So once I started to do uh, a lot more Thai boxing, I got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and, you know, the whole standard MMA martial arts stack, you know, that people tend to learn um, along with uh, Kali, which is Filipino martial art that's predominantly based around uh edged weapons and pretty much using anything as a weapon honestly their their philosophy is that you're the weapon so my instructor always used to say that if it if it's effective it's kelly so mm. 
So this that is really interesting ones. This this is really interesting for me. Uh, number one because I'm not doing any martial arts whatsoever other than what I see on TV and so yep. uh, you're probably a very intimidating to go up against in a in a dark alleyway so I wouldn't first of all I wouldn't want to do that uh, <laughs> yeah, hopefully you wouldn't want to <laughs> yeah secondly what makes you transition from one I'm wondering what makes you transition from one martial art to another because there are people that specialize in for example karate or judo and then they they find something that they like, but it sounds to me like at least the narrative of you is that you've been going between these different things. So what, what, what sparks you wanting to, for example, go into uh, Muay Thai or, or something else? So interesting. Uh, interestingly enough, the, it, it, I think it stems from understanding a weakness that you might have and then trying to become more well-rounded by making that weakness into a strength. And so, for example, for me, I, uh, with Krav Maga, I always had some trouble with some of the kicks, you know, like, oh, my round kick's really bad, even though I understand I might not even need that tool, but I, I, it still kind of bothers me that I couldn't, couldn't kick high, couldn't kick as hard as I wanted to. So who's really good at kicking? Oh, you know, Thai boxers, they know how to kick really hard and really high. And, you know, it's all about kicks and knees and elbows. And why don't I learn Thai boxing? You know, so I started to take some Thai boxing classes and sure enough, you know, that, that weakness starts to become a strength. And then I realized, okay, these guys, you know, Thai boxing is really good for the kicks and the knees and the clench, and it's, you know, very effective, but I could use some boxing because the, the hands part of it is a little bit weak. So I started to do some boxing and work on my boxing game. And then, you know, you sort of get into this hole where you're considering yourself a striker. And once you start to categorize yourself or say that I'm a, you know, I'm a, a karate practitioner, or I'm a, I'm a judo practitioner, then you start to become a hammer and everything looks like a nail that's time to start a, to, to sort of start diversifying a little bit you know what I mean because every system has weaknesses and so you want to branch out and cover those weaknesses as best as you can without you know becoming a jack of all trades and master of none obviously so there there is that trap that's interesting so that means if you're ever in a situation where you have to defend yourself you're not thinking about like I have this technique or that technique, you're actually just synthesize, synthesizing all of these things together. Is that the right way to think about it? Yes. I think, you know, Bruce Lee is his philosophy for Jeet Kune Do is it's, it's sort of just like that. You know, you have to, you have to be like water, right? You have to, uh, you have to absorb what is useful and, and reject what is not. And what is useful for me might not be useful for you. You know, it, it depends on, you know, the situation you're up against, you know, what works for me as a, you know, 220 pound male is not going to work for a 125 pound female, right? So the techniques are going to be a little bit different between people, but, you know, you can still be effective at whatever size or shape you are. You just need to use, use your, what you will find pretty quickly what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. If you are able to train them against resistance, you know, somebody trying to fight back. And that's the key. If, so, if you're taking a martial arts class and you're not sparring, then it's useless as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, because you're not putting it to practice, right? Yeah, exactly. You need, to, you need to figure out what the BS is and what the stuff that actually works is. And surprisingly enough, the stuff that works is very simple. It's, you know, sorry, go, try to go back to Bruce Lee again, but you know, he said he doesn't fear the man who's trained a thousand kicks once. He fears the man that's trained one kick a thousand times. Mm, yeah. So the people that are really good at the really simple stuff are the ones that you should be afraid of. But I mean, I say afraid of, you know, you shouldn't really be fighting anyway on the street, obviously. But sure. if, if push comes to shove, it's, it's, it's good to know. And I think it, it affects your demeanor as well. When you know you can handle yourself, verbal confrontations are much easier to handle. 
because you have the underlying confidence to know that you can handle yourself, you know? Yeah. And that's why I think I also want my, my kids to get into it, at least to a degree. You know, I, I think uh, something like Brazilian jiu-jitsu would be good for my kids to, you know, have, have the confidence and also know that they can control somebody without necessarily having to hurt them really badly. There's also that aspect of it. So Right, right. Because yeah. I remember, I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was a podcast I listened to recently where the host was interviewing a well-known martial artist and I, his name escapes me, but he was talking about that. Exactly what you said, which is mm -hmm. if you are in a position where you are ready to fight, you are actually able to defuse certain situations because he's saying that unless people are really, really drunk or, or high, oh, they yeah. don't actually <laughs> want to fight. People, most people don't no. actually want to fight. And if you have that confidence or that acceptance that you're willing to go into a plan B of self-defense, then they, you're actually able to defuse the situation. I've, I've not been oh, yeah. in that situation, so I don't know, mm. and I don't know martial arts, but I'm, I'm wondering if yeah. you feel that. Oh, certainly. And, you know, just, just, you know, being able to back up your words gives your words a little bit more weight, even if there's no way for that person to know subconsciously. I mean, just by body, body language and mannerism, you carry yourself a little bit differently. And most people, like you said, that, that's a great point. Most people don't really want to fight. They want to posture. You know, they want to run their mouths. They want to look tough. They, they have these BS Hollywood fantasies, you know, of, of being a badass. And once you've actually done all this stuff and you understand, what, you know, what really happens in fights and, you know, the type of damage that you can do to somebody and, and you know, the fact that you even you can be the best martial artist in the world and if somebody comes up to you and while you're fighting their friend and kicks you in the head and, you know, your head hits the concrete, that could be, you know, that's, it's all over, right? So you should never want to, to fight. It should always be something that um, is a last resort. Mm -hmm. And once you truly understand that, then you can kind of let things go a little bit. You know, you can, you can handle somebody calling you names yeah. without going, you know, flying off the handle at them. And I've noticed in my career as well, it's, it's, it's been very, very helpful to be more patient with people, you know? Interesting. So it's it's got a broad uh, application then. Definitely. I mean, it, it changes it changes who you are at, at a fundamental level. And I think it's very beneficial for for everybody. I mean, just everybody should know at least rudimentary skills on how to defend yourself. It's just it's part of being an, an adult human being. You know, I think that's you you you're incomplete without that kind of knowledge of yourself. Sure. You know. Sure. Hopefully one that doesn't involve having to, <laughs> to pull out a firearm or something, you know? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. That's actually what drew me to Krav Maga. And the, uh, another thing that drew me to Krav in the first place was all the, the firearms disarms that I thought were so cool. So, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you've not had though. to use that. <laughs> no, no. Okay. That's, that would be a bad thing. So it's, it's almost... The question I want to ask you is almost like, what don't you do? Because just from the, what the last couple of minutes of talking here, it's like you're you're into music, you're into uh, to martial arts, you're into uh, tech, you're like magic. Like, is there anything that you don't do, or you just you just try to do them all at a at a at a super competent level? <laughs> oh man, I mean, there's there's so much out there that you know I, I've had interest in and and not had the time or the resources. You know, I I I, I one of the things I, one of my friends is a really good skydiver. Like he does that wingsuit stuff yeah. that you see on, on YouTube where they're doing the, you know, they're jumping out with the squirrel suits and flying sure. close to the ground. The, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's, 
it's uh it's really fascinating it's like these they look like uh flying squirrels human flying squirrels yeah i've seen i've seen you're literally flying yeah so um something like that i've the whole the the extreme adrenaline junkie stuff is is probably uh, off the table at this point once once the children are here. So, oh, I um, thought you were going to get into that. No, I, I, I'm using that as an example of something that uh, that I can think of that I probably wouldn't be able to do at this point. Yeah, um, that I'm not into. Uh, me and my wife actually did a tandem skydive skydive one time, and uh, I think that was good enough for her. So, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe if she got really into it, that might be a thing to do. But. Um, at this point, you know, the last thing I need is another expensive hobby. Yeah, but but you just strike yeah. me as someone who's very into learning in general. Is that is that a fair assessment of you? Like you're curious about new things? Yes, I think that's a good a good way to put it. I'm just uh, I'm very curious. I like that word. I'm curious about everything. I want to know how things work, you know, and um, I think that's that's the kind of thing that should be it should be uh, developed and and encouraged you know curiosity and and uh, i think the world would be a better place if people were more curious about things and less judgmental about things you know that's kind of my philosophy just don't judge anything until you understand where the person's coming from and that opens up so many doors for you you know so i i've people that i probably would never have of it, magic is actually a great example you meet so many fascinating people in magic and, and everybody's got this stereotype that, that it's such a you know nerdy thing to do quote unquote and you know uh, only these social rejects play that children's card game you know I, I might be a little harsh saying that maybe that's not what people really think but um no that's definitely a having, stereotype yeah yeah it, it is a, it's, yeah it's a stereotype right and, and uh not having that stereotype and and you know kind of embracing the culture that you want to be a part of and being open and, and not judgmental about anybody as, as really, uh, it's, it's given me a lot of very good friends that I, you know, would not have met through without playing this game and without being a little bit more humble at the beginning, you know, and being willing to, to take my beatings, you know, being the new guy, not knowing how to play legacy, for example, you know, and just, I remember showing up at the lucky frog one day, which was the old shop that all the Northern Virginia crew used to play at in Annandale. And just, uh, Everybody there was just so welcoming and, and fantastic and willing to help me with my deck and, and strategy and all that. So um, ever since then, it's just you know, no turning back. So uh, so how did you actually find Magic for the first time? Was it through that going to a store or like how did you find out about the game? So my Magic experience, my, my Magic career started probably in sixth grade, I think it was. My cousin Matt introduced it to me. And uh, so we just, you know, we, I was over at his place for, I think it was like a holiday dinner or something like that. And, um, you know, we were in his room just hanging out and he, he showed me magic. And, you know, this is probably when Unlimited came out or maybe right when Revised came out, actually. So, um, you know, I thought that it was kind of a cool game, but I didn't really grasp all the concepts. And um, later on, I found out that my middle school had a, a kind of a Magic the Gathering club during lunch or I think it was after lunchtime. Something like you had like a lunch and then a, an optional club, club to go to. So I went there and started to learn how to play Magic, you know, poorly. But I, uh, you know, started started gathering interest and then collecting the cards and you know how that story goes. And you know, pretty soon you're asking your parents for money to buy booster packs and the addiction spirals and yeah. it sucks you in. And then there you go. So I've, I've, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very similar to a lot of people where you've stopped playing for a while, then you come back to it, and then you stop again. Um, I think in college I, I started playing again after I had stopped in high school, 
And then uh, after college, I got really interested in Legacy because I thought playing with the old cards would be really cool. So I uh, went on the Source, I believe the Source was around at the time. Yeah. So I, I went on MTG the Source and found out about the Lucky Frog, and that's when I started playing Legacy. Okay. So you actually had not played in tournaments up to that time. No, I was not a tournament player at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the only the only real competitive exposure I had with Magic until I got to the point where I was, you know, placing well enough in Grand Prix for um, for the Pro Tour um, was pretty much through Legacy. I mean, that was I was I was a one trick, you know, just play one format. That's what all my friends played. So, and it's it's actually such a great community. I'm I'm very happy that I, you know, was interested in Legacy because, like I said, it it, it exposed me to a lot of very awesome people. Yeah, tell me about some of those people because from the moment you went into the Lucky Frog, I, I I know from talking to Bob that you were you and some of the other guys were also welcoming to him as he came up in the legacy scene. So for you, what who were the who were the people at the time that really welcomed you and really had an impact on you wanting to get more deeply into it? So I think when I first went to the Lucky Frog, it was right after. Uh, I think it was a Star City Games duel for duels. Uh, man, looking back at that, where you could win like 40 duel lands, it's kind of insane to think about nowadays, isn't it? But yeah, they've <laughs> really we, gone uh, up after, in value. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to compare the uh, the status of my duel land collection to like the S and P 500 over the last 10 years or so. So, but anyway, so the um, the Lucky Frog. Uh, the the day I got, I went to the Lucky Frog, I I yeah, I, I had been very interested in the Suicide Black archetype. Uh, I believe uh, the article that I read, it was by a guy, uh, I think it was his, his handle was Legend, and uh, he's a vintage player. And so he wrote this really awesome article about uh, Suicide Black and Vintage, and uh, about, you know, what, what what it means to actually play a threat, and, you know, the, the, the idea behind playing an aggressive deck backed up by disruption, and, you know, essentially pick up a big rock and hit your opponent over the head with it, that kind of a philosophy of magic. So it was it was the Krav Maga of Magic decks at the time. <laughs> Very um, fitting. So, yeah. So yeah, I uh, I got into that archetype and I wanted to play it. And uh, the Lucky Frog was the was the place to go. And uh, when I got there, um, Anwar Ahmed, the creator of uh, Red Death, which was a suicide black deck that splashed red for uh, Burn, uh, Lightning Bolt and Chain Lightning, I believe it was playing at the time. Uh, so he was there, and he was playing his suicide, you know, his Red Death deck, and uh, I believe the Hatfields were there. Uh, Alex and Jesse Hatfield, um, Jesse Krieger, uh, Dave Price. Uh, let's see, all these guys that that I used to play with: Jack Elgin, Matt Elgin. Um, there are a lot of guys there that you know I've I've since had a you know very long friendship with from from that day. So um, you know, Damon Whitby, uh, another friend that I met through Legacy. I'm not sure if I actually met him at the Frog. But uh, he was another one that that I met pretty early on, and uh, Dave Gearhart. He, he I, it was funny because it was sort of a a roll call of all these all, all these creators of these awesome legacy decks that I've been reading about. So I knew that Dave Gearhart created Solidarity, and uh, you know I already told you about Red Death for Anwar, and I knew the Hatfields were really big for um, for Threshold, and uh, in, in the current incarnation that they were playing at the time. So it was it was very cool to be around so many people that had, you know innovated the format pretty much. Um, it was like a critical mass of a lot of really cool legacy minds. 
I was very lucky to be close to it. So why was it that that scene or that area everyone was really into Legacy or 1.5? Was there a, were they all like minded like you? Like they wanted to play with older cards, or were there? Uh, just trying to understand that because it seems very special in that sense. It, it is very special and it was very special. And if you I, if you had been to the Lucky Frog, I mean, this, this is like a trailer behind a strip mall. Like it was, <laughs> there's nothing special. Like we were all playing on picnic tables inside this trailer. And um, Dan Grant and the guy who owned the frog, you know, he was he was really really nice guy and very welcoming. Um, and I, I I have no idea why Legacy in particular had such a, a huge uh, uh, gathering or a, a huge community. In that in Annandale, I mean, I really don't know what the genesis of it was, but um, it really was kind of a, a collection of very eclectic but very smart people that just really liked Legacy, and I just happened to be close by. And they were all very welcoming. I mean, I, I it, it seems to me that way. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gone back and kept kept it on, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I um, so I, I don't necessarily fit. A stereotype of somebody that usually plays magic so I, I i have to kind of ease my way into the quote-unquote nerd communities that i'm a part of you know they have to they have to realize that i'm safe i'm one of them you know so once once that you know once i i i, I can you know kind of disarm people a little bit and you know they, they tend to open up to me a little bit more than they would if they just kind of saw me on the street i think if that makes sense. I guess it's kind of bad that we still label people based on their appearances, but you know that exists. Human beings are judgmental by nature. We need some metric to measure each other by. So, you know, just being open and welcoming and humble. That on my part, I think help them reciprocate. Yeah, for sure. I mean, did they find it strange that someone would enter their scene that didn't quite look like them? Or I mean, I'm just trying to figure <laughs> yeah. out how that worked. I, yeah, I, I think that that might be a bad way for me to put it because I'm I'm kind of framing them in a poor light, I guess you know. But it, I just, you know, I, I I look like a frat bro, really, you know, when I'm walking around. I just don't I don't look like uh you know I, I lift weights a lot. I, I look like I you know just came back from you know the Lifetime Fitness and down to creatine shake and then stopped by the comic shop to play nerd cards with all these people. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I you know once I actually start talking, it's you know. Okay, he's safe. He's one of us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that was one of the things that Damon said about you was uh, when I had a brief talk with him was that Dan is has this kind of um, all-American boy kind of look. And he said that at first he wasn't sure what to make of it. And he was actually later quite surprised that you were really into some of the things that everybody was into, like sci-fi or fantasy. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's just that a lot of the times what you see on the outside doesn't really reflect the person, if that makes any sense. Oh yeah, certainly, certainly. And uh, you know, it goes back to being you know non you know don't reserve your judgment for yourself is what what I guess my philosophy would be. You know, there's you're you're never gonna know somebody without trying to know them. You know, you, you can't you can't put labels on people and expect to know somebody. So. And the more that happens, the more you exercise that. It's like a muscle. The more you exercise that, the more you want to know about other people and the more it sort of snowballs. And before you know it, you just got a big group of friends from all different walks of life and they're all fascinating, you know. So it is very rewarding to have that mindset. So was there a particular thing that happened in your childhood that made you want to become more open-minded? Because I imagine it's not easy for people to just embrace that, right? We kind of go through life thinking one thing because that's just who we mm-hmm. are and how did you come to that realization well i th- i think 
I mean, I, growing up, I, I wasn't exactly, you know, like a mean kid or anything like that. But I was sort of, I was kind of a jerk a lot of the time. You know, I was just, I was, I was an obnoxious teenager. Um, as far as you know, looking back on the cringy stuff that I've done, I'm sure everybody has these feelings if they try to remember themselves when they were, you know, 15 or whatever. But um, I think it's just sort of a, a maturity thing, honestly. I think you sort of have to, you have to have that initial epiphany, maybe that you know, okay, hey, maybe, maybe these people, um, you know, maybe maybe they do know more than me. Maybe I should stop being so arrogant. You know, I, I was I was a very arrogant kid when i was in high school especially you know i thought i was so smart and you know all these people are all they're all idiots blah blah, blah you know just very negative attitude that i had about life and um you know once i started uh being a small fish in a big pond in college you know that kind of humbles you a little bit and then furthermore getting your butt kicked in martial arts that'll do you wonders so <laughs> going back <laughs> to the martial arts thing yeah once you realize once you realize you're not so tough then you can come to things from a more humble perspective. That makes sense. So everybody should get a should get a good butt kicking in their lives. That's what I'm trying to say. Under controlled circumstances. Get, get a good uh, <laughs> literal butt kicking. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So going back to the magic thing, you you went in there uh, being a proponent of suicide black. You learn about red death. Tell me how mm-hmm. that evolved into maybe some of the the more well known decks that you're known for or you're known for playing. Sure. So uh, I started actually playing Red Death after you know talking with Anwar and, and understanding his design philosophy for mm-hmm. for Magic decks. Um, he actually wrote a, an article for Star City Games a long time ago called "Are You Playing a Threat," which kind of evaluated um, you know how if you can't pressure it, it was essentially if you can't put pressure on a control deck, for example, it, you know if with one creature, the, then you should probably reevaluate while you're playing that creature. Um, I'm paraphrasing kind of poorly right now, but um, he sort of uh, uh, helped me understand why these decks were being built the way that they were, and why these card choices were being made. And you know, I was still learning the legacy card pool, you know, because it's it's huge. There's you know every every card from every set, and I had been out of Magic for a long time, and um, getting back into it, I had a lot of learning to do. And and the legacy metagame at that point was pretty much Goblins, and then Solidarity and Threshold. I think Goblins was everywhere, um, so a lot of the decks were warped around that. And um, uh, so I, I, I played Suicide Black for a while. I played Phyrexian Negator in a format that was full of goblins, and everybody used to question that choice until you would Dark Ritual it out on them on turn one, and then they realized they're probably in trouble. Um, you know, it's it's a, a, an interesting philosophy of deck building to play a Suicide Black deck because back then creatures actually had drawbacks. Believe it or not, mm-hmm. there was no Tarmogoyf. <laughs> yeah. But um, so eventually, I, I got to the point where you know I think I, I I liked the threshold style decks as a concept, but I didn't feel I had the confidence to play a, that kind of a deck. You know, it's like oh man, Brandstorm is such a a skill intensive card. I don't know if I can pilot this well. I'll probably look like an idiot if I pilot it. And you know, how how can I do this? And finally, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to play Solidarity because it's probably harder, and I want to be. Um, I want to throw myself into the deep end and play a blue deck, you know, try to try to test my limits a little bit. And so I started playing Solidarity for a little bit and realized that it's not, you know, the impossible deck that everybody said it was. And, you know, obviously I had access to David Gearhart's mind, so that helped a little bit too. Um, but no, and then I just sort of, uh, you know, started exposing myself to more blue decks and realized that Brainstorm is a fundamentally broken card. And, uh, um, eventually just started playing agro control decks 
Um, so as far as, uh, I'm sorry, do you want me to go into Team America and um, how that came about? Yeah, exactly. Because I, I don't want to jump the gun again. Because oh no, I, no, I, you I can, can you can go leading. as slow as fast <laughs> as you want. This is this is all yeah, about sure. just knowing about your progression and legacy or 1.5. So sure. So um, Dave Gearhart made this deck called Europe. So uh, we had always kind of made fun of uh, some of the European players that posted on the source. Um, about some of their card choices, like saying like extirpate was main deck material uh, from one <laughs> post. You know, I mean, it's it's obviously that's not reflective of all Europeans at the sure. time that were playing yeah. Magic, but the people that were posting on the source were, were either trolling yeah, us or just completely humor. out of yeah. touch. Yeah. yeah. So um, so Dave made this deck called Europe to kind of tongue in cheek make fun of these guys, and uh, it had four main deck extirpate. It had Dark Confidant, and I think it had Tombstalker and Dark Confidant in the same deck. Um, and Stifle, and Sinkhole, and uh, just every single piece of disruption you could think of you just shoved into this deck and with and had four main deck extirpate. So I was like, you know what? When I watched him play this deck, and when I kind of played around with it on my own, you know, nothing serious, but, you know, just, just you know, he'd hand it to me and I'd play it. And I said, you know what? This deck actually has a few good hands when you're not drawing all the nonsense stupid cards. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should take all the things that work and cut all the stuff that's a joke. And so then we're like, okay, well, what's what's better than XYZ? Oh, let's add green and play Tarmogoyf because the card was, you know, the best creature back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so we added Tarmogoyf and it's like, okay, well we have four Tombstalker and four Tarmogoyf. Let's keep let's cut the extra pates and let's add Thoughtseize. Or actually I think Thoughtseize was already in the deck. I think um, we eventually just we, we cut all the silly disruption and we played uh, Snuff Out. Mm-hmm. Four main deck snuff out. So this deck played four main deck snuff out, four thoughtsies, and four force of will. So it was uh, it, it was not kind on its own life total, but it was so brutally fast against things like goblins that it, it just didn't matter. Mm-hmm. So um, the original incarnation had a few problems with being threat light, obviously because it was only playing eight threats. But if you did draw one of those threats, it was really hard to deal with because everything else in your deck was just disruption and ways to, de- to defend the threat. So, uh, you know, we do things like play against goblins decks and um, have turns where you would, you know, sinkhole their land and snuff out their guy mm-hmm. and attack with a huge creature. And it's just, the deck was just, you know, tempo, tempo, tempo mm-hmm. was, was the name of the game. So, and then uh, I want, we wound up, uh, I entered into the, I think it was the Source Annual Tournaments, or it's not annual, it didn't happen all the time, but it was a, a big tournament hosted by MTG The Source. And I wound up top fouring with that deck. And, um, then we decided, since we had removed all of the European cards, that we would name it uh, Team America. So <laughs> we, we uh, I, mean, I think we were just in the car, kind of you know throwing names around. I was like, hey, if this is if this was Europe and now it's our incarnation of it, let's call it Team USA. And then all of a sudden, you know, we decided that Team America sounded better. And yeah. the rest is history. And all these people are so confused about why a bug deck with you know, disruption and threats is called Team America instead of a blue, white, red deck. So, sure. I love the fact that it still persists to this day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I yeah. mean, it, it's the leg or it's the tradition of nonsensical deck names, which is exactly. Perfect. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it started off as a joke deck based on what you yes. said. Yes, okay. yes. Uh, it was definitely not a good deck in its first uh, its first iteration, but yeah. sinkhole. Uh, you know, it's a common threat well, here. Well, Sinkhole was still played <laughs> later on in a serious fashion, no? Oh, yes, definitely. Actually, it, uh, it got me uh, to the top eight of a Grand Prix um, in, a side, in the sideboard of Team America with Deathrite Shaman at that point. You know, it was Deathrite Shaman, Delver, 
Karmagoyf and Tombstalker, and uh, we couldn't, for the life of us, figure out a way to beat Esper Stoneblade, which was, I think, the Tier 1 deck at the time, the Shaheen Cerrone's uh, uh, Lingering Souls deck. Right. You know, um, I think I actually uh, have a camera match where I lose to Shaheen with uh-huh. uh, Team America playing against him, playing that deck. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, so in, in, uh, we did some testing and figured out that uh, my friend uh, Jeff McAleer, he, uh, we, we sort of were looking through my binder and we're like, hey, would Sinkhole be good against this deck? <laughs> I don't know, maybe, let's give it a try. And so I put four Sinkholes in the deck and post sideboard games and just crushed him playing when he was playing Esper. So he's like, maybe we found out, a, maybe we found a way to beat Esper Stoneblade. And uh, sure enough, when I played in that Grand Prix, any Esper Stoneblade post board was just a, a you know, just destruction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That, yeah. card, that card was so good. It's it's pretty good once you realize you can still destroy basic lands, right? Yes. When they're relying on fetching basics against you, it makes sinkhole like much more devastating because now it's just cutting them off of entire colors. So it was uh, quite a good strategy. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> Team America is an amazing deck. I've had uh, a lot of great experiences playing the deck over the years, and I'm also very thankful to you for giving me all those tips over MTG The Source. Oh, well, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to provide them. <laughs> yeah. So how did you how did you guys go from playing at the Lucky Frog to Curio Cavern and Nova? Nova was the, the team or was the a group of individuals? I'm trying to understand that. I'm sorry. Uh, no, Nova is, a, is an acronym for Northern Virginia. Oh, okay. So I... that's that's just why why I keep saying Nova. I'm sorry, I keep forgetting that people outside of the Beltway radius probably have no idea what I'm talking <laughs> about when I say that. I honestly so. thought it was a team name, but but that's that's great. And but how did yeah. you guys go from that uh, Lucky Frog to Curio Cavern? Just another store that you guys played in, or? Yeah. Well, so um, well for starters, our team name was actually Team Unicorn, and that is still our team name unofficially or officially depending on who you ask so but anyway moving on the uh the team unicorn people which included all of us at the lucky frog um we eventually the lucky frog had to close down sadly and uh, we started playing at um outpost games and uh there's another shop there was one in one in gainesville and one in fredericksburg that we sort of continued the legacy tournaments um at i'm sorry my cat just walked in the room here Uh, but no so um so we started playing at those locations off and on and uh you know it wasn't as consistent as the frog was you know people sort of since there were two shops now it was sort of you'd see the weekly regulars go down to maybe monthly regulars and then um eventually we just started playing at this place called uh you know curio cavern which is in springfield and uh, also right near where uh, dave gearhart lives so i think that's probably why we started playing there because of uh of Dave Gearhart, and that's been our kind of home base ever since. Tom, Tom, the guy that owns the uh, Curio Cavern, is he's a really cool guy, and, and he um, very, very uh, supportive of the legacy community. So we're very thankful that you know he um, hosts the the weekly Wednesday night legacy tournament because it's it's you know usually on a good night we'll get maybe thirty or forty people, and they're all very you know uh, highly skilled Magic players. It's a it's a it's a tough tournament to do well at. So having that kind of competition on a weekly basis is is pretty uh, is a pretty good luxury. Although now you have Magic Online, I guess. So <laughs> is that still going on today? Like you can still get weeklies there? Is that definitely? Uh, I mean, as far as I know, I haven't been to a weekly in maybe a month and a half. I think the last time I actually no, the last time I went to a weekly was right before Eternal Weekend, so I could get some actual Magic: The Gathering playing in before the tournament. 
Um, but I, as far as I know, it's still Wednesday night at seven o'clock. Show up and play Legacy. So still going strong. Yeah, yeah that's that, that's great. I'm kind. Of, I know I'm kind of jumping all around here, but just going back to Team America a little bit. How do you feel about the more recent printings of cards? Because you used to play in an era where these new cards like Delver of Secrets and Deathrite Shaman did not exist, as did I. And it's now evolved to you're playing Grixis Delver, you're playing the list that Bob Huang has popularized, and it's it's not about Tarmogoyfs and Tombstalkers anymore, even though it is very much about Temple in, in some sense. So how do you feel about these new cards and, and their impact on the legacy format? I mean, it's, um, it is kind of homogenizing and it is sort of, it, it is kind of frustrating from a deck building perspective. Sometimes when you, you know what the best threats are already out of the box, there's no real, it, it seems to lack that experimentation that used to happen in legacy where you'd play against somebody and they play some card from onslaught that you never heard of that you'd have to read three times, you know, and like, why are you playing this? And then they beat you with it. You know, that doesn't usually happen anymore, which, you know, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just different. You know, it feels like a much more polished format and, and there's a, there's an actual meta game and that, that doesn't include just one deck, you know, like goblins used to be. Um, but it's uh, the, the new cards. Uh, I mean, I said that, that Grixis Delver is probably the best incarnation of the Delver deck right now, and I, I don't think that I'm wrong about that. I think the fact that the threats are so diverse in that list, and um, you're playing the Reach, you're playing Lightning Bolt, you're playing Deathrite Shaman, you're playing Delver of Secrets, which I think are the three components of a successful Delver deck. Uh, and then once you take into consideration the fact that you're playing those cards, your, your options kind of become very limited. right? So Grixis gets the ability to play... True Name Nemesis, which is you know very resilient single threat. Uh, he plays Young Pyromancer, which is a very resilient go-wide threat, so the edict effects against the deck are really, really hard to get off uh, effectively. Because they might just draw the Pyromancer part of their deck. And then you've got the Gurmog Angler that's really resilient against most spot removal, and then the core of Deathrite Shaman and Delver of Secrets to clock your opponent really hard with one-drops. And you, know, you just have this perfectly built killing machine. You know, so... I think um, the the threats have kind of gotten to the point where there is a best threat for what you want to do. If that makes sense. Yeah, it goes back to what you said about how it used to be that creatures had drawbacks, right? Whether it yes. was uh, their flavor text, withered resh, Nantuko shade, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, they had drawbacks. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah. I think Tarmogoyf really got the ball rolling on creatures with no drawbacks, and then. Yep. And then you had to splash. I mean, I remember when I, I started with Suicide Black as well. Then I realized, oh, there's a creature called Tomogoyf. I better get Bayus so I can play it. And then, right. then it was like, well, there's a card called Brainstorm, which you had mentioned is yeah. basically a busted card. So, well, let's, yes. let's get some underground seas. And now you have like Swiss Army Knife creatures like Deathrite Shaman, which basically have no drawback <laughs> yeah and things like snapcaster mage that are just you know insane in the right shell and uh, mm -hmm. true name nemesis which should never have seen the light of day as far as i'm concerned you know like it's it's just just overpowered creatures i think right now and and i i i'm not saying that as if it's a huge negative thing it's just mm -hmm. kind of the natural evolution of the game i think sure but um and i i generally don't like the sort of banhammer approach that wizards takes to you know like modern for example mm -hmm. They've, they've been very, very 
uh, active with banning cards in modern and trying to shape the format into what they think the format should be. Mm-hmm. And I think with legacy, they've kind of left it more to the player base to figure it out unless something's completely egregious, like, you know, flash Hulk or, um, you know, something like that, that basically needs to be banned. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's also some stuff that should probably come off the ban list to shake legacy up. Although I'm not entirely sure at this point, what would do that? <laughs> you know, you've got, you've, you've got things like people putting Grizzlebrand into play on turn one. And then you look at, the ban list and like earthcraft is on it so <laughs> yeah i don't think earthcraft or i, I think they unban yogmoth's bargain that didn't do anything right uh i oh, know bargain's still bargain's still on the ban list oh it's still um, on the ban list yeah How- i actually think i think bargain would be a problem it would um, be a problem i think right? we we had this debate like obviously uh, probably many times before and among the the legacy crowd here and i brainstorming it a little bit i think no pun intended the um the card is just it's 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 better it, the fact that you can split up the draw you know you can just do it one at a time makes it a lot more resilient than grizzlebrand is mm-hmm. as far as um and it's not a creature obviously it's an enchantment it's harder to deal with um just the, the shells we were coming up with seemed a little bit overpowered but i'm sure somebody like caleb over at channel fireball has probably made a video of it or i remember he had a series where they, they would he would make decks with banned cards in them and try to play them and testing i think oh that's and, right um, yeah yeah, I can't remember if he did bargain or not, but um, I'm pretty sure that you know stuff like bargain and uh, mind over it was not mind over matter. Uh, what's the storm card? Uh, uh, windfall. Uh, uh, um, yeah, uh, the one that you reveal the top card of your library and play the spell for free. Oh, it was it uh, future sight or something like no, 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 no. no that's actually legal. Now I'm going to look like a fool because I don't know this card. <laughs> no, but how do you... That, that's fine. I, I don't know it either, yeah. but how do you feel about... I'll think of it. How do you feel about the more recent bannings like Top? I honestly think Top should have gone when Extended banned it. I, I like the fact that they banned it, but I don't like why they did it, if that makes sense. That does make I sense. Think, because they banned yeah, it I, for, for time reasons or for logistical reasons, right? Yes, yes. And I think that that they sort of... They sort of, they the fact that they weren't consistent with their design philosophies or their banning philosophy rather kind of makes me wary about what they might do in the future, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that a lot of players were maybe blindsided by it because there were, you know, that it it didn't really make sense from a philosoph a philosophical perspective for them to ban it if they were going to be consistent with the way that they used to be, um, but. That being said, I'm I'm kind of happy it's gone. I think the card was a huge problem. Um, I think Miracles was definitely like tier S, and then everything else was you know below it. Um, not that that's a reason to ban a card. I think maybe you should print more cards to deal with things like that. But the problem with Top was that it's just so hard to interact with. You know, um, it's it, it protects itself. It's a one drop. It's it's does everything that a Miracles deck wants it to do, and it and it eats time. You know. Mm-hmm. And it's very frustrating to play against somebody that might be able to slow play you with it without you having a legitimate complaint against them. That's another issue that I, I found with that card. Yeah. Um, I know that I've, I've received a couple of draws from people that might have slowed down their, their play a little bit once it was evident that they weren't going to win a game. You know, And that kind of an experience makes you a little bit frustrated at a, at a tournament. So, Oh, yeah. Just all around good for it to, to be gone, but kind of sad that they did it the way they did it. Mm-hmm. it it's kind of one of those things where you can have the end not justify the means or maybe the end is achieved, but you don't like the rationale into it. And it suggests that they don't have a level of 
organized thinking that that you would you would want from someone a tournament body it, I, I think that's what you're saying that's kind of how i feel yeah. on a on an emotional level exactly it, it sort of lessens their their standing and then and, and it sort of uh it, it kind of makes you think that they don't care as much about your format you know it's it's like i don't know that that's a bad way to put it it's sort of um it's just it's just the inconsistency that's that's what it boils down to it's 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 hard to it's hard to predict what they're going to do next if they do stuff like that Sure. I mean, hopefully they're not just throwing uh, darts at a dartboard or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. they might be. Who knows? <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I think I think they tend to not want to mess with legacy because people are so invested in their collections, and it, the cards are just so expensive that um, they would definitely have a, a you know a lot of upset people if they if they started to ban too many things, and you know people invest in these decks and get really good at them and when you're a legacy player, you generally, you know, a lot of the community just sticks with one deck and that's what they play because it's either all they can afford or it's just, it takes so long mm -hmm. to, to get good at a legacy deck and learn all the intricacies of the format mm -hmm. that having something banned out of the deck you're good at is a really devastating blow to you just based on how much time you've spent and how much you've invested in what you usually play. So, Well, sure. And yeah. now, Dan, here comes the million-dollar question. I, I don't know all if right, you're ready for go. this. Deathrite Shaman, ban, yes or no? Oh, geez. Um, I have to say no. I think uh, it, it's an annoying card. The fact that it is it is so good and it and it allows decks to get away with, I mean, things that they would never never should be able to get away with, right? Like, look at the mana bases in Legacy. It's it's atrocious, right? You can you you can fourteen you can color play. producing sources in Grixis Delver. Yeah. Yeah, you can play whatever you you know. Play all the colors, whatever. Deathrite Shaman will, will fix that for you, you know. And it, it's especially bad in in Grixis Delver, I think, because it it just does so much. And it's it's not like the deck is trying to play really expensive cards, which makes the card deceptively good. It 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 just gives you so much tempo in the early game, and it's it's a win condition that you have to deal with. And and it's already, it's also accelerating your opponent while it's clocking you, and it's. Fixing your mana, it makes it makes sinkhole terrible, which is the main reason I don't like the card. Well, not really, but <laughs> I I kind of uh, I like to mess with people's mana bases. It, it, I, yeah. I get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, that being said, I am one of the most egregious abusers of that card right now. So, <laughs> I, uh, I and and even I would I wouldn't be sad if they if they axed it, but um, it would be another one of those bannings where I would not agree with why they did it. You know. Hmm. So I, I, I don't know. I don't think legacy is ever, ever going to be quote unquote healthy for everybody. Everybody's going to have a problem with the way it is. And, you know, maybe, maybe brainstorm. Sure. Who's, whoever Who said it was healthy, yeah. completely healthy yeah. to begin with. Right. It's just people with rose colored glasses. Exactly. You know, they just, they, they have their one, the one time that they had the most fun playing the format. And then they just wanted to go back to that. It's, it's like, it's like politics, you know, like people always remember, uh, you know the the better times and, and the good and times tend, yeah yeah they, they tend to ignore all the all the bad things that might not have been even happening to them but you know they it's it's just a very human thing to want to do that yeah but yeah you just, just got to adapt you being someone who is a, a a fan of tombstalker and tarmogoy back in the day and me being a fan of mm -hmm. Uh, that as well as Zoo. Whoa, back whoa, in the whoa, day. whoa, whoa, whoa! I am still a fan of Tombstalker. Oh, okay. No, no. I, right. This is this. Is, I have a very. I'm just trying to explain my agenda for asking the <laughs> yes, next question, yes. which is. I just want to clear that up. <laughs> yeah. For the record, you're you're still a fan of it, and and I'm still a fan. Delver of Secrets ban? Yes or no? Hey. Um. 
I don't know about that one. It's a hard one. Uh, I think Delver is also one of those kind of problem cards that makes... I mean, it's the fact that the best zoo deck is a blue deck right now is really obnoxious. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. why would you ever play Wild McCattle when you can play Wild McCattle that flies? Yeah. You know, oh, and also I have Forceful in my deck, so, you know, good luck mm-hmm. with the Belcher deck or whatever. So, um, but no, I mean, it, it's... I think... It's it's annoying because the card is so easy to interact with, but the games that you lose to it are, um, you know, it, it enables such a such a fast clock for these decks that it it makes the rest of the strategies work so well, right? Like it makes Days such a better card. Mm-hmm. It makes you know it makes Wasteland so devastating in some of these draws. You know, like Del- Delver decks on the play could get these draws that you just can't beat. You know, um, which can be annoying, but uh, and Delver is a huge part of that because you're you're dead, you know, before you can do anything. Uh, before you can draw yourself out of their mana disruption or or out of day's range or whatever. But um, I still don't think that card is ban worthy. Mm. Um, I think, I think it is an annoying card, but um, yeah, I don't really, it just goes back to that, that philosophy of, of trying not to ban cards and trying to either print something new or, or unban something, you know, like maybe, um, maybe they need to print something to make, zoo come back you know who knows um mm. i'm just kind of spitballing here but you know i'd rather i'd rather see <laughs> yeah like a five five really wild macado cards. maybe <laughs> exactly yeah who knows they might even print that you know like yeah but the problem is the, the blue deck would play it so <laughs> that's the problem they'd, yeah they'd have to uh they'd have to figure out a way for you know the blue player not to be able to get access to the really powerful new creature so right right I guess they they tried that with Spirit of the Labyrinth and look how far that got them, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, if that thing had um, more than one toughness, maybe it would have a, a shot. But uh, that's that's, that's not. Oh, I'm sorry, that. not yeah. enough people are playing Great Sable Stag. That's probably the reason that blue. Is yeah, so yeah. So. Sorry, Wizards. Uh, yeah, that, yes. that, that card did is uh, it was no good. <laughs> yeah, but we're we're having a gentleman's agreement not to play it. That's probably why. That's so. right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Got to keep those brainstorms good. So, how do you feel about the legacy format right now? I mean, having said all this and, 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 and me giving you all these questions, how do you, how do you feel about it right now, it, it, foreseeable future? Uh, I, I, I mean, I like the format personally. I think there's, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of diversity, but I do think that there is a very clear best deck. Um, I don't know if that's a problem or not. Uh, I, think, I think Delver has is, is, is just got that much better once Miracle's got the axe. And that's just kind of a direct result of it. It's like, well, Delver was the second best deck behind Miracles, so now it's the best deck, right? So the metagame kind of seems to not have been able to adapt to Delver decks, really. You know what I mean? Like, when I was playing in that tournament at Eternal Weekend, I, the only decks I lost to were Delver decks. And then there was the one Miracles deck that, that I played against in the last round that, that kind of destroyed me because it had a lot of tools designed to beat Delver. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like playing on a different power level, really. So um, maybe Eldrazi needs to come back a little bit more. I'm not even sure if that's a good matchup, honestly, from from my experiences playing against that deck. You know, the problem with 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 um, Legacy is that the decks that beat the good blue decks are really inconsistent, right? So you'll depending on who you ask, you'll say, oh, you know, why would I play Delver? You know, I I got destroyed by Eldrazi in you know two rounds that I I ran into it back to back or lands or whatever and. And then you'll say it's fine because you know Delver's not that powerful. You know there are decks that beat it, but then you get the players that play Delver and just crush those decks because they're more consistent and they they get the forcible draw and it didn't matter anyway. You know, so it's um 
it's kind of hard to judge the format from a health perspective when people are still playing a lot of different decks, you know, but it's still, I think a lot more people should be playing Grixis Delver. That's what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I think if you want to win a tournament right now, you would be playing Grixis Delver and maybe, maybe something like check pile, but I think that deck just, it's, it's, um, it's good, but it just, it's, it doesn't have as many tools to, to win as many matchups as Grixis Delver does. It's just that I, I tend to default to the aggressive deck, right? Mm-hmm. That's playing a similar strategy. So yeah. more proactive, more bad, you know, the more proactive deck generally has a advantage in open meta games. Yeah. So. And, and I feel like I've, I feel like I've uh, sort of jumped to the same conclusion that you have. Maybe it took me such a long time to do it because just to share a little bit about on, on my side, I, I've been, I've been playing different legacy decks over the years, like uh, Epic Storm, Ad nauseum tendrils, uh, zoo, which is actually my my favorite deck of all time. Um, sad yeah, talk to the Hatfields. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Right, uh, and Dave yeah. Price. Right, these guys are, are masters oh, yeah, yeah. at it. Uh, Jackalpup, right, back in the day. Uh, yeah. You know, and 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 I've come to the conclusion this year that I don't have a lot of free time. I was playing Death and Taxes, but I was very very frustrated with a lack of brainstorm, and so I decided this year. I think since July that I was just going to play one deck and that deck was going to be Grixis Delver. And mm-hmm. I have to tell you, Dan, in the five, six years I've been playing Legacy, uh, actually I've been playing longer than that, but in the five, six years that I've been in China playing Legacy, my win, win rate has never been higher. And it's just because mm-hmm. I've decided to embrace an aggressive deck that happens to be good against a lot of different decks. And rather than try to play hipster decks that I had, like I had in the past, like Nick Fit or decks that I thought had good matchups against Blue, I just said... I'm going to play what I feel like is objectively one of the best decks in the format. And that's, yeah. that's all there is to it. And it's, it's a good been, strategy. It, it's been good. <laughs> I, I, I'm not yeah. going to lie. It's been good. And so yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of frustrated with myself that it took me so long to come to that conclusion because I had always thought that I wanted to win the game on my own terms or I wanted to, mm-hmm. um, to, to battle the quote-unquote best decks. But I think I've realized that if you can't beat them, just join them. And it's, it's yeah. fine, you know? I mean, you know, magic is still, you know, there, there's there's an aspect of of fun to this, right? I mean, we're all playing. We're not trying to be professional players here. At least I'm not. Sure. I mean, it's 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 something we do for enjoyment and for the competitive outlet and for the community. And you know, it's it's all it's all the the things that come with it that we that we like. And and to say that you know you just um, are frustrated with yourself for not doing that earlier, maybe it's just because you're like, all right, I'm just going to go ultra spike mode now and actually try to win tournaments, you know, that kind of thing. Because winning is it is fun. It, it reinforces you. You know, it's like you feel better when you win a game of Magic than if you lose, obviously. Mm-hmm. And you want to put yourself in the best position to do that. But that being said, you know, there is something about people that purposely play something that isn't the best and still try to win with it. It's It's not even about purposely handicapping yourself, but it's more, like you said, winning on your own terms. And, yeah. um, you know, I can understand the appeal of that too. So not, not to disparage anybody that, that wants to try something wonky and crazy and, and go out and play sure. in, a, in a legacy Grand Prix, obviously, but yeah, just don't play burn. Cause <laughs> I, I've tried that. <laughs> and, and, you know, I have, I have a, I have a really good friend, uh, Jeremy, who, who's in the Seattle magic scene and he's, is super well known for playing, counter griefer reactive decks in legacy he'll actually look at the mm-hmm. metagame and say i'm going to play dragon stomp you or in fact because i think i'm going to beat most of the players in the room by doing that and he's actually successful in doing that in oh, 100 yeah. person tournaments like he's yeah. actually the most metagamed 
gamer that I know, and it's it's amazing. Yeah. I, I have so much respect for him. But I just know that for my situation, it's kind of I have such limited time to play Magic. I might be able to play once every month or once every two months. That if I if I don't keep practicing with a deck like Storm or Death and Taxes, I get very I play very suboptimally as well. And mm-hmm. I think with Delver, it's kind of like riding a bike. You've been doing it for a while, and you you, you understand the basic concepts uh, concepts like you daze their stuff, you you ride a Delver to victory, you play a Force of Will, mm-hmm. you. You temple them. Uh, there's there's a, there's a lot to be said for that. For I guess in my personal situation, I can't speak for everybody, yeah. but but uh, just just trying to give a little bit of uh, context uh, on 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 where I'm coming from. So yeah, I mean, and I also think that you know, putting the focus on things like Deathrite Shaman and Delver as as being problematic. I mean, that might be true, but it, really in the end, it's all about brainstorm and ponder i mean the the consistency that these decks have is is why they are the best you know right being able to um you know draw draw the good hands the majority of the time and or you know have a handful of bricks and all of a sudden you top deck brainstorm and now you've got a monster you know it's it's things like that 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 uh make these decks pull ahead in the long term right so if you're thinking like a poker player you want to always you always play aces right so if you're mm-hmm. if you get Pocket aces, you know you have the best hand pre-flop, right? It doesn't yeah. matter if somebody beats you by sucking out on you. you. You still have, you still, if you could get any two cards at the beginning of any game of Texas Hold'em, you'd always want pocket aces. Because sure. it gives you the best, <laughs> gives you the best odds to win the game, right? Yeah. So I think that's kind of, I mean, it's not, it's not as much of a disparity as it would be for somebody with pocket aces versus any other hand, but it's more... Um, there, there is an advantage to playing the best deck, and you want, you know, to if you want to win tournaments, then you play whatever you think is the best. And yeah. blue t- with can like the cantrips just give you the the best odds in a long enough timeline. Yeah, the the cantrips allow you to turn your seven deuce off suit into aces or kings. <laughs> it's, <so>. Exactly. <laughs> Even if you draw those that the, the the seven deuce, it doesn't matter sometimes. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that that's really that's really good uh, observation. So. Yeah. Let me just switch gears a little bit. And if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you just a series of rapid fire questions. These questions may not be related to one another, but I just wanted to make sure that you, uh, you're able to answer them. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. Yes. Bo- uh, boxer briefs. They're the best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So okay. you've said in the past that you play at your best when the stakes are highest. How did you learn to perform effectively in those kind of situations? So I guess when when you say the stakes are the highest, I would I would also say when when the level of competition is the highest because it's that sort of happens you know hand in hand I think when you're at the later rounds of a tournament and you're on a winning end or you know you're in the top eight of a Grand Prix or something like that um, you know something more, or at the Pro Tour you're you're by default going to be playing against people that are better at the game than the people that you played against during the earlier rounds of a tournament, right? So that's just how it works. The people that are that are better will win and advance to the later rounds. Um, so I tend to perform better when the competition, when I know that the person that I'm playing against is either as good or better than me at the game because I'm more concerned with making mistakes, I think. And I think when you know that your mistakes are going to be punished more, you tend to try to make less of them. If that makes any sense, um, you 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 understand that the consequences are greater for you to play that brainstorm in the wrong order, or you know, um, to make that small little mistake that you know this guy's going to capitalize on. You know, so um, it's kind of a learned skill, and it comes from 
it, it comes from sort of inconsistency also in my play. So it, it might not actually be a positive thing because I think that you should be playing on your A game all the time, no matter what, right? Ideally, you wouldn't make you wouldn't make mistakes if you were playing against somebody worse than you. You'd still try to play optimally, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it can be kind of a double-edged sword, you know. It can it can make me make mistakes in earlier rounds of a tournament because I haven't, you know, I I, def- I, I don't want to say I would disrespect my opponent or underestimate them, but I feel more relaxed sometimes when I know I'm in the first rounds of a tournament or I'm not playing against some name pro, you know. So that sort of influences my play a lot. What about the pressure aspect? When you're in the later rounds and you have a winning in, does that is that when maybe you have a mental edge or you learn to relax in ways that maybe other players may not be able to? Possibly. I think uh, I think I take almost a Zen approach to it, or you know, just focusing on the one thing that's in front of you, and that's actually what I do throughout the whole a whole tournament. If for, for a Grand Prix, for example, or anything that has a lot of rounds that. People are all, all the time, every single round, they're like, okay, I'm X and one. If I do this, this, and this for the next three rounds, I have the chance at top X, you know, whatever. Um, I never think of that. I always think, all right, I'm going to play this next game of Magic, and I'm going to try to beat my opponent. That's it. I'm not thinking of any of the standings. I'm not thinking of any potential for top eight, nothing like that. It's just I'm here to play against this guy in front of me or this girl in front of me, and I, I'm going to try to beat them in Magic the Gathering. And then after the day is done, the chips fall where they may, you know, so... That obviously is going to change a little bit if there's an intentional draw situation going on, you know, for doing really well and then drawing into top eight. But for the most part, it's it's pretty true. I just I think of the the next game and that's it. Got it. Next question: You've made an incredible impact on players around you. Of the players that I've talked to, like Bob Huang, Alex Hatfield, David Whitby, amongst others, they've all had good things to say about how you've helped them on a maybe a. A friendship or on a magic level can you tell me a little bit about how you see yourself playing a role in helping others develop their game and maybe their confidence yeah uh i i think i try to be approachable uh when people have questions about about magic or life or whatever really i'm i'm i, I it goes back to trying not to be judgmental trying trying to be open and trying to be humble with people so um that you know, I I, I think uh, as you know, when I, when I first met these guys, they were you know so much better in Magic than I am. They knew so much more about Legacy. And then as they played with me and taught me, and then I started to learn more and and become more of an equal to them. Uh, we kind of fed off of each other. And I think uh, when new players, like for example, when Bob came and, and started playing with us, you know, it kind of injects a lot of energy into the group. You know, we're, we we all we all become a little bit jaded with the format, and sometimes, or we, you know, just we we start getting stagnant with creativity with deck building, or you know, maybe it's not as fun as it used to be. And then a new player shows up and is really excited and really wants to learn, and it's it it kind of jump starts you. So, um, you know, it's 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 a positive thing to welcome people in and and learn from their perspective, you know, because it. it it, it makes you view things from a point of view that you might not have considered before. What are some of the key learnings that you've absorbed from players around you? Um, I, I mean, other than just, just magic, the gathering skills and, and learning how to play in a tournament, that kind of thing more, uh, uh, I guess, I guess, I mean, are you, are you considering it more of a, a personal level or just on from a magic level? 
It could be either or. Okay. Uh, well, you know, I think I, I've met people from all different walks of life playing this game, and, and I've just been sort of exposed to, uh, you know, different, you know, different types of music, different types of culture, different movies. You know, we've, we've had movie nights together, you know, where we just watch some random sci-fi film that I've never seen before. It never knew existed. And, you know, it's like the best thing ever. And, um, I've just, I've just been sort of, uh, I guess, I guess I've just, uh, been enriched a lot by some of these guys that I've met that, um, you know, come from all, all different perspectives, all different areas of life. And it's, it's more than just magic at this point, right? It's just, it's the friendships that you build. And I, uh, I, you know, I'm just very happy that we hang out on a level that's not just about magic, you know. The, like for example, the Eternal Weekend Road Trip. It was it wasn't even about the tournament at that point. It was just us going up and having a good time and hanging out with each other. I don't know if that answers that question. It was sort of a of a, a free flow of thoughts. <laughs> no, free flow of thoughts is uh, what I'm looking for. So it's awesome. Sure. Yeah. Do you have any goals in the next three to five years, either personal or magic related that you feel comfortable with sharing? Oh man. Uh, other than career goals, I mean, you know, I, I obviously I want to, want to still, you know, advance in my career, be the best develop, software developer I can, I can be given what I'm doing. And, um, most of my goals revolve around my kids right now, honestly. So I want to see my kids grow up to be, you know, well, well-adjusted, uh, happy kids, and I, you know, so far so good. That's that's going pretty well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, having a family kind of kind of puts puts a pause on a lot of different goals, but it introduces a lot more to your life as well. So, right now, it's all about the kids. I think. Next question: Is there anything that you would tell yourself if you could time travel back five years and tell? the Dan from five years ago, something other than buying Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. You and me both. Yeah. 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 Or I, I think, uh, honestly, for, for, I think my life has actually been sort of, sort of boring in the last five years, not really boring, but it's been good. Like every, everything's sort of fallen into place. You know what I mean? There, there's been very little conflict in my life right now. And I think, um, I'm very grateful for that. And I think going back five years, I would probably try to tell myself to not worry about being a dad and just sort of trust myself to do a good job raising my kids and, and, you know, just reassure myself that it's definitely worth it. And, you know, you're going to, you're going to be just fine and, you know, keep on doing what you're doing. So if I went back farther, maybe the advice would change, but, you know, <laughs> Did you feel like your life had more more conflict or more uh, turbulence uh, if you went further back in time? Oh yeah, definitely. I think um, you know, just relationship wise, before I met my wife, you know, didn't have as much focus. It's it's weird once you once once I decided to get to get married and and to start having a family, um, things sort of fell into place a little bit more. But uh, you know, before then, you know, you, you sort of wonder, you know, what. Uh, you know, what am I going to, where am I going to be in 10 years? And, you know, I, I, the dating scene for me was always very complicated and, you know, I didn't, I wasn't the type to really, you know, go out to, you know, to try to meet people at bars every night, that kind of thing. And, you know, I tried to, uh, uh, I guess, I guess, I guess 
from not even just a dating perspective and a, and a relationship perspective, it, it's more just uncertainty, you know, having, having a career that you don't know what you want to do and you don't know where you're going to land. But once that all falls into place, it, it, it's been pretty, uh, pretty smooth sailing. I think so far knocking on the wood right now. So that's awesome. Yeah. Your friends say that you always seem to be happy-go-lucky or at least happy on the outside and you're smiling. So what keeps you in a positive state of mind? Oh, I just bottle up all my negative emotion and eventually it'll probably pop. No. Uh, <laughs> just watch no, out I, um, next time you're in a dark alley with Dan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ser- serenity now followed by a you know, punch in the face. But uh, no, I think... Um, I, I think that my attitude of of self improvement, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm I'm striving to make myself better all the time, and I I don't want to compare myself against others. And I think that learning to abandon a lot of more material pursuits in in favor of more things that give me positive experiences. Like I used to, I used to really be into you know getting. I, I always wanted a, a really awesome car, you know, and. Um, I was much more of a gearhead a, lo- a little while ago, and um, I, I I think that that I mean that's just one example. I think kind of uh, abandoning to a degree things that I would get just to make other people think more highly of me was something that made me a lot happier, and also sort of abiding by the philosophy of of the great Jack Lane, who said that there are two things you can complain about: the things that you can't control and the things that you can control and if you're complaining about something that you can control then you should probably just go ahead and change it and stop complaining and if you complain about something you can't control i mean there's no reason to complain about it because you can't do anything about it so you have to adapt to the situation at hand so i think applying that philosophy has been very very um conducive to happiness certainly yeah and also, you know, just 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 being being friendly with people, you know. You'll get more friends with uh, honey than vinegar, right? So. Oh yeah. Yeah. I asked you a question about happiness, so I guess it's only fair to ask the flip question, uh, which is, what things piss you off? Oh, geez, too many to count at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's. Uh, uh, I mean, judging by the the current political climate, I was actually a really big uh, proponent of. You know, like net neutrality. That that entire debate, mm, yeah, kind of got me got me steamed. I really, really dislike telecom companies uh, for the way they do business. Um, I I have a lot of problems with the healthcare in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the way that we are going is is very adversarial, and it's kind of scary to me that people can't really have a civil conversation anymore. Uh, you know, people say that you shouldn't talk about politics and religion. And I think that people just have forgotten how to have a civil conversation with, with one another. You know, I think if we learned how to do that, then the subject matter wouldn't really matter and we would be able to solve some of these problems instead of, you know, having these my team versus your team kind of discussions on Facebook and, you know, single blurbs that are just designed to piss off the other people and make your people go, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, um, and it's actually kind of scary because some of these social media companies have these self-learning algorithms that are trying to detect, you know, where your political leanings are, what your demographics are, you know, what, what kind of things are going to make you um, keep coming back to your Facebook feed to have positive reinforcement of your own views. And so you've got algorithms that aren't even, you know, 
controlled by people anymore that are mm-hmm. are determining what you see every day. So mm-hmm. um, it's very polarizing. It's a very fascinating time to to be living in. I think social media has really kind of changed the landscape for maybe the worse. I'm hopefully you know that's not the case, but um, we've certainly seen that in in the past couple of years, obviously yeah. with the political climate. So. I think there's a line that Dickens Same. used, which is very appropriate. You know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It certainly feels yeah. to me like it's we're in a world now where there's extremely unlimited, exciting opportunities. But at the same time, we can't get past certain things. Like, I think what you yeah. said about oh. having, like, be able to have good discourse with people about topics. It, it's more like now we're in this world where it's more about avoidance. Let's just not talk about this and let's not talk about that. Or when we do talk about it, it has to be in a very specific way. Like it's yeah. us versus them, which is, which is troubling yeah. in my opinion. So yeah, the whole adversarial thing is, it's, I don't know. I'm, it, it, it is a good quote, the best of time and the worst of times because and, you know, it all comes back to technology and, and the good and bad it does for us. So yeah, we'll have to see what it's like in another decade or so. <laughs> <laughs> If, if the machines haven't taken over by then, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Are you yeah. uh, are you a believer in the singularity, or are you are you a, a believer of the, the the flip side, which is that uh, we'll we'll be able to have some peaceful coexistence with AI and and all that? Well, I mean, I think uh, I think we definitely have the potential to have a peaceful coexistence with AI, and you know, when people discuss AI, they're generally discussing you know artificial general intelligence or an intelligence that can actually think like a human being and not just be good at one task. You know, so once we hit that and then it becomes super intelligence, then we just made a Darwinian error of creating something smarter than ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we programmed it with a soul, you know, like something that that is not going to be the, you know, the the devil granting you a wish, you know, when you ask for something and then it twists it, you know, that kind of thing. That that scenario is what kind of scares me about this sort of technology. But um, going back to, to AI, I think. Uh, I'm kind of fascinated with a lot of ventures that Elon Musk has has been involved with, just like you know everybody else that's a millennial at least. But <laughs> the um, pro the, he has a company that he started called Neuralink. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but read a, read a few things about it. Yeah, yeah. it's, uh, it's yes. some crazy stuff. <laughs> yes, it is very, very, very crazy stuff. And I I think it's fascinating to to think of artificial intelligence not as a separate entity, but being as a part of us, you know, being integrated with with human beings and, and, and us turning into the artificial intelligence, you know, just augmenting our ability to solve problems and to still, still maintain humanity in the system, you know, maybe that's the best hope that we have. But then you, then, then you start thinking of all these other countries that are researching this and hopefully the person that gets there first is going to be the one that, you know, thought about all this in advance and not just some, you know, somebody that's trying to take over the world, you know, oh, yeah. standard evil AI scenario. Yeah. It, it, it very much remains to be seen. Yeah. yeah. So who knows? Pretty interesting time to be alive, but um, the next, next few decades are going to be interesting, I think. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so final question, Dan, what would you tell a, if there was somebody who wanted to get into competitive magic for the first time, uh, what would you tell him or her in terms of how to get started in that in that realm or in that domain? Uh, I'd say come by Curio Cavern and have a conversation with us. <laughs> but <laughs> other than that, um, I think if you wanted to get into competitive magic, at this point, a huge resource that I personally uh, have kind of 
I think neglected uh, is Magic Online. Just being able to 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 play uh, Magic and have the the phases enforced and and be able to to see visually and and how the the, the stack works now priority works and and that sort of thing i think magic online is a very excellent tool for somebody that wants to learn the game at a competitive level to use and then i would also tell them to um you know be humble but friendly and outgoing you know i mean it's 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 most magic players are really good people that i've run into you know and they'll 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 be very willing to to help you out if you're just starting out as long as you have the right attitude you know uh, this is especially true in the legacy community, from what I found. It's just a, just a, such a welcoming, open community, and you know, it, as, as long as you're willing to put yourself out there and and ask for help, and you know, be humble, and you know, try try to not mind getting getting your butt kicked every week for a little while, and you know, stick with it, and you'll reap the rewards. Just try. Just don't do it professionally. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, words of wisdom from from Dan Signorini. So Dan, thank you so much for having this talk with me. Uh, uh, I I feel like I've talked to a, a real life Renaissance man. Like you're you're just into <laughs> so many different things. You know, it's just it's it's amazing. And and I'm I'm super grateful that you you took the time. And I I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. I did, and uh, I'm I'm flattered that you thought of me for this interview. And I hope that I have. Uh, been a little bit entertaining and people can see a little bit more of what makes me you know the the myth of dan signorini has been dispelled a little bit or expanded on depending on which part of this you listen to <laughs> oh it's definitely been so. it, it's definitely been great for me and uh I, I you know i've been doing all these interviews but it's only to work my way up to you you know it's just so <laughs> that i could improve my skills and then one day i would interview you and Honestly, this is this has been great, and so. Well, I'm glad you told me that now because if you had told me that before, the pressure would have just turned me into a blithering idiot. So. <laughs> or, or it would have made the interview better. So who knows? Yeah, yeah, it would have been an interesting experiment too. Yeah. I'll yeah. see see if the, uh, the my my magic uh, ability to rise up to the challenge will right. actually be the same in interviews. Who right, knows? it'll be like Dan Signorini can can top eight a GP, but can he actually survive this interview? All right, Dan. I'll let you get back to your family and and all the busy stuff that you've got going on. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you again. This is great.